Welcome, proud members of the present, to another episode of the Primalosophy Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Holderbaum, and today's episode is brought to you by UFF, the preeminent firefighter wellness program on a mission to make the best job in the world a healthier one. Go to primalosophy.com slash UFF to get started. My guest on the podcast today is biologist and author Rupert Sheldrake. You know him from his books, A New Science of Life and Science Set Free. He studied natural sciences at Cambridge and philosophy at Harvard. He's on the show today to talk about morphic resonance, psychic phenomenon like the sense of being stared at, and his latest book, Ways to Go Beyond. I've wanted to get Rupert on the podcast for some time now, so this was a real honor for me. So please welcome Rupert Sheldrake. Rupert Sheldrake, thank you so much for taking the time to be on my podcast today. Good to be with you. So I'm curious, have you used your time in quarantine to explore any more unexplained phenomenon? Yes, I'm enjoying very much the um, amount of extra time I've got without having to travel or give talks and teach at colleges and universities and things. Um, yes, I've been exploring um, morphic resonance phenomena um, and I've been exploring um, a phenomenon I've been interested in for many years, the ability of people to wake before alarms. And that's something we might talk about later, but that's something very much uh, uh, in the foreground for me at the moment. And I love how you explore these, I guess what other people would consider, if, if it's not explainable by science, then it's dogmatically denied. Well, exactly. I mean, what I'm most interested in, in, in the human realm, and indeed with dogs, cats, and other animals and indeed the whole natural realm is what I call the mysteries of everyday life. Mm -hmm. I think there are all sorts of things going on in our lives all the time which aren't on the scientific map and as you say scientists tend to deny them dogmatically if they don't fit in um, but it's precisely by paying attention to what we don't understand that science expands. So I think that this is actually a very unscientific attitude. In fact that's the reason for my book science set free where i question the dogmas of science which i argue are holding back scientific inquiry by limiting uh, people to a kind of tunnel vision do you think the laws of nature are just too simplistic by design to sort of cater to our lazy way of thinking well i've i've that's one of the dogmas i challenge the i don't think there are laws of nature i think that there um the idea of laws of nature is very anthropocentric. Only humans have laws. Um, I think nature has habits. Mm -hmm. And um, I think the habits of nature build up and evolve as nature uh, herself evolves. Um, that the, the, the regularities of nature are like deep grooves of habit rather than something fixed by mathematical laws that were all there at the moment of the Big Bang. So the universe itself is a creature of habit. Yes, and I think nature has a kind of in, inherent memory, and each species has a kind of collective memory on which each individual draws and to which each individual contributes. Mm -hmm. I think it was you who said, science says, grant me this one miracle in regards to the Big Bang and beginning of the universe. Can you say more on this? Actually, it was my friend Terence McKenna that said that, but mm. um, he, he made the point that science, as we now know it, is based on the principle of give us one free miracle and we'll explain the rest. And the one free miracle is the appearance of all the matter and energy in the universe and all the laws that govern it from nothing in a single instant. 
And that is more or less what contemporary science says. And, uh, and I think Terence put it very clearly. Mm-hmm. So you're well known for your theory of morphic resonance. You say memory is inherent in nature and that telepathic interconnections exist between organisms. And this idea came to you when you were doing research at Cambridge. Can you tell me more about this sudden insight? Yes, well, I, you see, the, the, for, for decades now, most biologists have thought they can explain life in terms of molecules, genes, DNA, proteins, and so forth. And of course, those are very important in living organisms. But it's rather like trying to understand New York City by analyzing cement and bricks and, mm. and timber in, in buildings or uh, tarmac in roads and things. All those things are important. New York City wouldn't be there without all of them. But um, there's so much more to it than that. There's the architectural designs of the buildings, there's the motives of the people who live there, etc. Mm. So I just think that a great deal is left out. And in biology, the plans, the designs of animals and plants, the forms in which plants grow and which animal embryos develop are not included in the genes. The genes just enable them to make the right proteins and to control when protein synthesis is switched on and off. <clears throat> there has to be something that gives them shape or form. And the idea that's already established in biology has been for a hundred years is of morphogenetic or form-shaping fields, which are like invisible blueprints for developing organisms. But they can't be inherited through genes because genes don't do that sort of thing. They specify proteins. Um, so I was grappling with the question of how could they be inherited? Um, and then I read some work by the French philosopher Bergson, um, written around the 1896 and he was thinking about the nature of memory and Bergson had the brilliant insight that memory may work by a direct connection across time rather than being embedded in traces in brains and so on mm -hmm. and then I realized that if there's a direct connection across time in the whole universe if there's a memory in everything uh, that's given by the process I call morphic resonance a resonance of similarities across time then a great many mysteries of biology would be solved, including the mystery of memory itself. Mm. And that was the basis, uh, and still is the basis, of my basic idea of morphic resonance, of habits of nature, laws of nature being more like habits, collective memory within each species, and our own memories being things we tune into, um, not things that are stored in our brains. The normal view is that our memories are all stored as physical traces in our brains. Evidence for that is very, very limited. In fact, it hardly exists despite a hundred years of looking for these traces. They've been ever more elusive. Mm. And I think that's because they don't exist. Um, and I think our memories work on a kind of resonance principle. The brain's more like a TV receiver than like a video recorder. Okay, yeah, it's something that we tune into. And Henry Bergson said, the eyes see only what the mind is prepared to comprehend. Was your first LSD trip back in 1970 or 71, or your, your travels through India and Asia, the preparation needed for you to confidently drop the mechanistic model and shift from following the crowd to following your heart? I think it was something I was, you know, I'd spent 10 years at, Cambridge working on the development of plants and I'd become more and more concerned with 
the problems within biology itself of explaining form. And this is a long-standing problem, as I mentioned, uh, the idea of morphogenetic fields was first put forward a hundred years ago. Um, so I was, I was, I thought biology had basically hit a brick wall, that the molecular approach wasn't going to solve the most fundamental problems. Um, so that was the, what prepared me for looking for something else. And traveling in India, which I first did in 1968, um, definitely opened my mind to completely different ways of looking at the world. Um, and indeed, when I took LSD in around 1970, um, that for me was a paradigm shifting experience because nothing, I was at that stage an atheist, a materialist. Um, I'd bought into the standard worldview uh, that went along with my scientific education, mm -hmm. but nothing in that education prepared me for this experience. And so it did really shock me out of that way of thinking and led me into an interest in co exploring consciousness in different ways, primarily through meditation. And I ask that because I admire the way that you can bridge science and spirituality and science and philosophy. Well, thank you. I mean, I do that because that's really part of my own life. You know, I, I'm on a kind of spiritual journey like many people. Mm -hmm. um, I'm interested in philosophy because philosophy looks at deeper questions than science. It looks at the framework within which science operates. Mm -hmm. And if you don't look at the philosophy, then you just buy into the dogmatic assumptions of science uncritically and unfortunately that's what many scientists do mm -hmm. and these assumptions are very limiting because they're based on the mechanistic materialist worldview which says everything's an unconscious machine um, I just think it's a false view of nature or at least a much too limited view and since your time in India seemed to be such a big chapter of your life, I just have one more question about those travels. Was there a lesson you learned from Father Griffiths that stayed with you after all this time? Well, I learned many things from Father B. Griffiths, whose ashram I lived in for a couple of years. I was primarily in India doing research on in an agricultural institute, but I, I took a couple of years out to live in his ashram. And that's where I wrote my first book, A New Science of Life. Mm -hmm. Well, I think one of the things I learned from him was that the spiritual journey in different religious traditions is very similar. There's a lot in common between different religions. And what's in common and what all religions come from really is experience. They all start from uh, the mystical experience of feeling our own consciousness is part of something much greater than ourselves. Um, they don't start from dogmas, doctrines, philosophies. They start from experience. And I think that for most people today, uh, experience is what religion's about. A lot of atheists caricature religion as being all about hierarchies and dogmas, but it isn't. All religions start from experience, and most people who follow religions uh, do it because of experiences they have through prayer, through meditation, through rituals, through singing together, through celebrations, through rites of passage. Mm. Um, and indeed, these are themes that I discuss in my most recent book, Ways to Go Beyond and Why They Work. Going back to morphic resonance, this means we all draw from a collective memory and contribute to it. So 
it should be easier to learn things that have already been learned, not just through someone else's experience. And this is sort of like nature's wisdom. And this effect is seen in rat studies and it wasn't confined to the descendants of trained rats. So it suggests a morphic resonance rather than epigenetic effect. Am I close? Yes, you put it very clearly. The thing is that <coughs> when I first published my work on morphic resonance in 1981, in, within biology, there was a dogmatic denial uh, of the inheritance of acquired characters. You could only inherit genes, and genes could only change through random mutation. Well, since the year 2000, the inheritance of acquired characters has become mainstream. Uh, it's now been rebranded epigenetic inheritance. And um, so if rats' parents learn a new trick, then the rats may be able to learn quicker through epigenetic inheritance. But what I'm saying goes beyond even epigenetic inheritance. It, as you put it rightly, what I'm saying is that all rats of that breed should learn it quicker, even if their parents haven't learned it. They tune mm -hmm. into the experience of previous rats of the same kind. And we see this in the example of rat poison, right? Yes. I mean, one of the things that is a practical example is um, rats becoming bait shy. If you poison rats with regular rat poison um, and a particular kind of bait, um, it works at first, but they soon become uh, averse to it. And it's not just the rats in the exact place where you've done it, but that seems to spread. This is a big problem for rat poison companies. And that's why um, the most effective form of rat poison warfare in um, is effective precisely because it takes several days to come on and the rats don't associate the bait with the uh, deaths that occur much later. Whereas if you have a regular poison put in some particular kind of food that the rats eat mm. and they die soon afterwards, they soon learn and this learning spreads. Thank you for trying to, to unfold that for me. I believe you've already designed experiments in which a pin code could be transmitted from London to New York without any conventional means of communication. How does that work? Well, that depends on, on a morphic resonance effect where you find um, organisms that you can make resistant to a particular poison. They can learn to overcome a poison or high temperatures. And um, if you had a whole range of organisms and you get one of them to become resistant in London and you test these organisms in New York and you find that that organism, which you could label number seven, for example, has become resistant and the others haven't, then you'd get seven. And then you do it again with another one of these organisms, say numbered five. And if that one became resistant, that would tell you the next number in the pin code was five mm -hmm. and so on. So it wouldn't be a very... Uh, economical way of transmitting a pin code, but the point is to demonstrate the principle that morphic resonance involves a transfer of information that doesn't rely on any of our existing technologies. It's something, a completely new principle in nature as far as science is concerned. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to talk about your view of the mind or what you call the extended mind. Our minds are not just inside our heads, but they've extended beyond them in morphic fields sustained by morphic resonance. Is this an electromagnetic field or made of something different? I think it's something different. Um, electromagnetic fields certainly play an important part in the interface between our minds and our brains. I mean, our brains work electromagnetically. 
and I think uh, and electromagnetic patterns uh, of activity um, are associated with our thoughts and feelings. Uh, so I think that they're the interface between our minds and our brains. But the extended mind is most easily thought about in relation to seeing. I'm looking out of my window right now at a tree and the image of the tree I'm seeing, I'm suggesting is where it seems to be. It's out there where the tree is. It's produced by my mind. It depends on the light that comes in from the tree into my retinas, changes in the optic nerve, changes in the brain. But I then form an image of the tree and I think I project it out to where the tree is. I think vision's a two-way process. Light comes in, visions are projected out. And that's why you see things in mirrors. What you're seeing is your own projection, which goes straight through the mirror, whereas the light is bent. And a mirror, every time we look in a mirror, it's one of those mysteries of everyday life. It actually is telling us that we're projecting out what we're seeing. Okay. And the projection out means our minds touch what we're looking at. Mm. And that's why there's the sense of being stared at, why you can tell when someone's staring at you. And I wrote a whole book based on the extended mind called The Sense of Being Stared At and Other Aspects of the Extended Mind. Now I'm curious, if we die, is it possible that our consciousness continues in a dream world with other beings? Well, that's how I think of it myself. Yes, I think that dying is, um, our consciousness can continue, um, but it's like dreaming and you can't any longer wake up because you haven't got a physical body to wake up in. So we're, as it were, trapped in a dream world when we die and the kind of dream world we're trapped in will depend on ourselves, on our own beliefs, on what we've done, on our memories, and indeed on what we believe, what our faith is. If you're an atheist and you think that when you die it'll all go blank, maybe it will. Um, if you think that when you die you'll be helped by Jesus Christ and the saints and the angels, then maybe you will. I, I, I think that myself. Um, if you think you'll be reincarnated, if you're a Hindu or a Buddhist, maybe you will. There may be an element in which our own beliefs shape what happens when we die, but that's because the dream world in which we find ourselves um, it depends so much on our minds. In fact, it is our minds. It's, it's no longer anchored to the physical world of sensory information and ex experience. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that it's um, that some people may be trapped in a kind of nightmare when they die, and that might be like hell. So I think this is the simplest explanation that covers all possibilities. Okay. Could you say more about the dream world that you imagine you'll end up in? It depends on what we think and experience, and our own normal dreams are just regular, ordinary dreams that we all have every night, involve uh, not only an imaginary world of possibilities, sometimes based on memories of what's happened to us, sometimes on anticipations of what's going to happen, uh, sometimes on, I think, collective conscious, uh, the collective unconscious or collective memory. Um, but within our dream world, we also have a dream body. Every night when we sleep, in our dreams, we have a body that's doing things, moving around, talking to people, sometimes flying, running away from things, you know, meeting friends. Um, this dream body that we have every night in our dream life is different from our physical body, which is lying asleep in bed. So I think 
the idea that we have another body that can survive the death of our physical body uh, may sound like an incredible, uh, bizarre belief system. Uh, but when you think about it, it turns out it's not a bizarre belief system. It's something that's part of our uh, everyday or at least every night experience. Having a dream body as opposed to the regular physical body is not something we need to imagine. It's something we've all experienced. And that, I think, gives us uh, the clearest and easiest way of thinking about the nature of the afterlife. And to go even deeper with that, is it possible to share a dream world or lucid dream together so maybe when we pass we can stay together? Well, a lot of people have had telepathic dreams where they meet people they know in their dreams and pick up information from them. Mm. And some people who live in close communities like tribes in Malaysia, for example, uh, do seem to have collective dream worlds. Uh, some people who go to dream workshops uh, in uh, America or Europe um, and who work together as a group for a while uh, find that they can actually have uh, dreams in common where they both have the same dream and meet each other in the dream and communicate within it. And when they check in with each other the next day, they find out, yes, indeed, they were indeed sharing a dream. So I think it's definitely possible because many people have experienced it. Mm -hmm. I haven't experienced it myself because I haven't taken part in such a dream workshop, but many people have. That's beautiful. And you've talked about what happens to the oak tree when it dies. Their fields are within and around the tree. And when it dies, they disappear from that place. But the tree's fields can affect other oak trees by morphic resonance even after it's dead. This just makes me think of morphic resonance serving as a sort of living legacy. Well, it is. It's a kind of collective memory, you see, and um, the collective memory of oak trees will contain influences from oak trees over millions and millions of years. Mm -hmm. um, we also draw upon a collective memory, and part of it goes back to our hunter-gatherer ancestors, um, and there's many aspects of our psychology that I think we inherit from that long period, more than a million years of human evolution where our ancestors were hunter-gatherers. Uh, most of our ancestors have only been living in cities for a few generations. My grandmother, both my grandparents were born in, vi in villages and lived in, in, in rural societies. So I'm only sort of second generation urban person myself and that goes for lots of people in uh, Europe and America. Mm. So we've got a much longer ancestry um, which pay, plays a part in um, the way our minds work, also in our dream lives. Um, so I think we all draw upon a huge collective memory, most specifically, of course, from people who are most similar to ourselves, people from our own previous generations, our own family and from our own culture. Mm -hmm. And drawing from hunter-gatherers, and this predator-prey relationship that you mentioned earlier and the sense of being stared at, this is real. Obviously, we can feel it when it's happening. Yes, I think that um, in the animal world, the feeling of being stared at is something that would help prey animals survive. And if a prey animal can feel when a, a hidden predator is staring at it, it's more likely to survive than one that can't feel it. And I think the sense of being stared at among people, which is very common. I've recently done uh, some polls on Instagram and on social media, and well over 90% of people have had this experience. Other surveys have shown the same. Uh, 
I don't think this is because we're special humans, uh, that it's a special human ability. I think it's because it's an animal ability that we inherit from our ancestors. Uh, our ancestors were prey more than predators. I mean, early humans were pretty defenseless in the face of things like saber-toothed tigers and cave bears. Um, and it wasn't so much man the hunter as man the hunted. Um, and so I think that the um, this ability to feel stares is just part of our biological nature. It depends on the fact that eyes and the visual perception depends on the extended mind of animals and people feel each out into the environment that connect the seer with what is seen. Uh, but the sensitivity to it, I think, has a long evolutionary lineage. And that's why this shows up as another of the mysteries of everyday life. Most people had this experience many times in their lives. Mm -hmm. I guess the argument there would be, is this an example of morphic resonance or an evolutionary strength? I think it's uh, the ability to feel when you're being stared at is um, to do with the, day, the way the nature of perception, to there'd be an evolutionary basis for increasing the sensitivity to it. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, morphic resonance could play a part in that. But I think the phenomenon itself depends on the very nature of our minds as being extended beyond our brains. Mm -hmm. And I've heard you speak about telephone telepathy in humans. Skeptics call it coincidence, but you've run experiments on, on this and found it to be an incredibly common ability. Yes, telephone telepathy, thinking of someone who then calls, um, is extremely common. More than 80% of people have had that experience in the US and in Europe. Um, and uh, as you say, skeptics say it's just a coincidence. But um, the experiments I've done show that it isn't. Um, uh, how the basic experiment works is that I find people who say it happens to them quite often. They sit at home with a landline telephone, no caller ID, being filmed on video. They give us the names and numbers of four friends or colleagues or family members. We pick one of the four callers at random, ring them up and ask them to call their friend. So the phone rings, they're sitting there, they know it's one of these four people, but they don't know in advance which person it is because they've been selected at random by experimenters. Before they answer the phone, they have to say who they think it is. Hello, Joshua. Um, I think it's Joshua. Hello, Joshua. They're right or they're wrong. Um, one in four chance of being right by just guessing the coincidence theory, 25%. In these experiments, it's actually uh, over 45%, and it's very significant statistically with hundreds of trials. I, I now have a, um, an automated version of this test working on cell phones, uh, which I invite anyone who's listening to try out. Um, uh, it doesn't take very long, it's free. Um, you need two other people to help with this, and you can find it on my website, shelldrake.org, mm -hmm. in the participate section, um, the telephone telepathy test. Um, and so this is something anyone can actually try for themselves. Uh, you don't need to go to a lab, you can do it where you are. This test, incidentally, works only at the present in the US, Canada, the UK and Italy. So if anyone's listening to this who isn't in those countries, you can't do it. But if you're in the US, Canada or the UK, you can. Uh -huh.
I'm going to do that as soon as we jump off of here. Now, most people are intrigued by these experiences and love to talk about these things until there's a skeptic or argumentative friend in the room. Are we embarrassed or afraid of being classified as believers in the supernatural or phenomenon or what? Well, skeptics are very aggressive usually, and they dismiss these phenomena as irrational superstitious and try to treat people who believe in them as stupid. They bully people into silence, basically. Um, so lots of people go on believing in them, go on having the experiences and go on discussing them. They just avoid doing it when there's one of these dogmatic skeptics in the room. Mm -hmm. uh, I've encountered a great many dogmatic skeptics over the years. In fact, they used to come after me quite a lot and attack me. And what I found is when I challenged them to a debate, and several of them accepted the challenge, they were grossly ignorant of the information. They didn't know anything about research on these subjects. Uh, they just assumed that these phenomena are, because they assume, according to their materialist philosophy, that the mind is nothing but the activity of the brain and it's all inside the head. So there's no way minds could distance. So really all they have to offer is dogmatic assumptions. Um, and I think it's best to turn the tables on the skeptics and ask them what evidence they've studied for these phenomena. And most of them haven't studied any. They just say they're ridiculous or why waste time looking at the evidence. They're very profoundly unscientific attitude. Um, basically, it's nothing but an expression of prejudice. I see the world through the lens of evolution, but my worldview doesn't depend on evolutionary science and it doesn't crumble if I have a spiritual experience that can't be explained by science. What do you think this says about me, that I'm a materialist headed towards panpsychism? Well, no, I don't think material evolution is a materialist doctrine necessarily at all. I mean, I myself am a Christian, an Anglican Episcopalian in American terms, and I, I don't see any problem with evolution. And uh, in fact, I think that the evolutionary view of the development of nature with an underlying divine creativity working in and through the evolutionary process uh, gives us a much enlarged view of divine creativity. Um, so I don't think evolution is materialistic. It is if you're Richard Dawkins or P.Z. Myers or Jerry Coyne, because these people are actually militant atheists who use evolution as a stick to beat religious people with. Mm -hmm. Mainstream religions, certainly in Europe, are not anti-evolution at all. Uh, and uh, so the fact you're interested in evolution, I don't think it makes you a materialist, it just makes you an evolutionist. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I think that spirituality itself is evolutionary. There were lots of Jewish people around before Jesus, and none of them had the same insights he did. He transformed um, you know, the Jewish tradition by his insights. And there were lots of people who meditated under trees before Buddha in India. And the Buddha had a, 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 an, an insight, uh, an experience which he communicated to other people. And that led to the evolution of Buddhism. And religions themselves evolve. And the current understanding of Christianity by modern Christians is different from that in the early church, partly because we live in a completely different world with different technologies. And, and different social norms and so on. I mean, then they took slavery for granted, and now we don't. Uh, so a lot of things have changed. 
through these secular forms of spirituality like psychedelics and meditation and yoga, people often learn that there's something more than our own consciousness and they start believing that we are part of more than human consciousness. And you call this the recovery phase from our materialistic education or freeing ourselves of this indoctrination. What is the most important lesson you've learned in your recovery phase? I think that the uh, direct experience of forms of consciousness greater than our own, which you could call mystical experiences in general, um, happen spontaneously to large numbers of people, and they've happened to me on quite a number of occasions. That's one of the reasons I'm so interested in spiritual practices, the theme of my latest book, Ways to Go Beyond and Why They Work, which is about seven different spiritual practices. Mm-hmm. The reason I'm so interested in them is because I think it's experience that we learn from. Um, I mean, I'm kind of intellectual. I'm in favor of I read lots of books and things. So I'm not against the intellect. Um, but what persuades us and what shows us more directly the nature of reality is the direct mystical experiences rather than just talking about them. And let's talk, let's talk more about your book, Ways to Go Beyond. In it, you make the case that in the modern world, sports are one of the main ways we go beyond our normal state of consciousness and become totally present. And this makes me think of the predator-prey relationship as well, because we're in the same fight-or-flight mode where if we let our guard down and say MMA or get distracted, we could get knocked out like we're being hunted. And meditation comes natural in nature because we have to be totally present and focused for survival. Well, absolutely. You see, meditation is a technique for coming more into the present and getting, letting go of the discursive mind with ruminations and worries anxieties and so forth. Um, So a lot of spiritual practices are about being in the present. But probably for most people in the modern world, the most effective way of getting totally into the present is through sports. Um, You know, if you're 50 feet up a rock face uh, without ropes, you're totally in the present. If you're in the middle of a football game and someone's passing you the ball, the crowd's cheering, etc., you're totally in the present. You can't worry about what you should have said to your girlfriend yesterday, whether you paid the gas bill or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, totally in the present. If you're skiing downhill at 60 miles an hour, you have to focus completely on what's going on right now or else you might be dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that sports are, are not normally thought of as spiritual practice, but I think that in the modern world, for many people, they become the primary way in which people come into the present become part of something greater than themselves, especially in team sports, uh, even for people supporting the team sports and you know, just watching the match. There's sharing in collective movements of emotion, which takes us beyond ourselves. And these spiritual practices are all about greater senses of connection. And sports uh, do provide that. And I think that's one of the reasons they're so popular in the modern world. And this could be said for working out as well. Proper form during heavy lifts and avoiding injury requires intense focus and proper breathing. As far as putting ourselves in the present and pushing beyond our our limits go, gyms are sort of Western temples. That's a very good point, Nick. Yes, um, I think so. And I think that uh, my point about sports is is not just about team games and or even about games. I mean, after all, a lot of sports are not games. Mountain climbing is not a game. Um, skiing downhill is not a game. Um, 
So working out, being in one of these uh, sort of temples of the body, a gym, um, is indeed a place where many people are coming into this intense present focus. Yeah, and I don't know if you like to play chess, but I don't know when I'm more present than when I'm in a, in a game of chess. Yes. It's interesting, the difference between chess and a physical sport. I mean, there are some who would argue that physical sports um, are the ones that most bring us into the present, whereas chess is a game but not a sport, um, in the sense that what it's doing is engaging our intellectual or mental capacities and bringing those into the present. So it's a very good point, actually, that it's, it's not just physical presence, it's also, in the case of chess, mental presence that can come through taking part in this game. And you also write about the spiritual benefits of intermittent fasting. And nowadays, we're all aware of the health benefits of fasting. But can you tell me about the spiritual benefits you get from your extended three or five day fast? Yes, I was fast during Holy Week, just before Easter. Um, it's a traditional time in the Christian it's part of Lent. And um, I do it for both physical and spiritual reasons. There are many spirit, uh, physical benefits to fasting, detoxifying the body, uh, going into ketosis um, is very healthy for most people. Uh, it also leads to a regeneration of the cells through the release of growth hormone. And psyche, fast, the ketone bodies in ketosis, when you're fasting and burning up fats, are psychoactive. They change neurotransmitters in the brain, particularly gamma aminobutyric acid and gamma hydroxybutyric acid, GHB. Um, I myself find that my mind becomes much clearer when I'm fasting. I also have a lot more time, partly because I'm not spending time cooking or eating. It means the day seems much longer. Mm -hmm. um, it dreams. And I think it's the, that's the reason why in all religious traditions, uh, people have had periods of fasting. Uh, the clarity of mind enhances the ability to meditate or to pray. And so we find fasting built in, not into Christianity in Lent and Islam in Ramadan, uh, but also into Judaism in Yom Kippur. And there are many fasting periods in Hinduism and in many shamanic cultures, people fast before rites of passage or vision rests. So many different cultures have discovered this, the importance and effectiveness of fasting. Well put. I really like what you said about it, extending the day or making the day seem longer. Like fasting is one effective way to slow down time. Now, all of these practices in your book are meant to make us happier and more connected to the moment. Why is this prescription to be present so popular and so effective? Well, when we're present, uh, we, we have um, a greater sense of connection with our environment, with our bodies, with the spiritual realm. And it's really that sense of connection that makes us happy. Happiness comes about through being in the flow, being in, in a state of connection. Unhappiness usually comes about through a feeling of disconnection, alienation, separation, isolation. And there's a great deal about the modern world um, that creates this isolation and separation, makes people unhappy. And in fact, the materialist worldview, which we're all taught as part of the educational system, uh, tells us we live in an unconscious, pointless universe. Evolution has no purpose or meaning. Um, 
and that our minds are nothing but the activity of our brains and everything goes blank when we die. All religions are a waste of time and just for people who are stupid. Um, spiritual practices, uh, uh, modern atheists now accept the need for spiritual practices, but traditionally atheists and materialists have regarded those as a waste of time. This worldview is deeply depressing which is why I think the endemic disease of modern societies, secular societies, is depression. Um, and these spiritual practices make people happier and healthier uh, and protect against depression uh, through this greater sense of connection. Yeah, and it sounds like your continuous exploration in science is kind of fueled by how unsatisfying that reasoning is. Yes, I think that that materialist worldview, which is what I critique in my book, Science Set Free, where I look at the 10 dogmas of modern science, um, is not only depressing and destructive of happiness, and indeed destructive of our ability to live in harmony with the environment. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's also scientifically wrong, and that it's inhibiting science through creating a kind of tunnel vision, um, uh, which is why my book's called Science Set Free, because it's about setting science free from these dogmatic limitations. Now, switching gears here, I thought we could kind of turn the tables. Before we started recording, you mentioned that you're doing research that involves asking firefighters about their experience. So I'm all ears. What would you like to know? Good, right? This is, as I said to you earlier, Nick, uh, before we began our recorded conversation, I was amazed when you approached me uh, doing a firefighter uh, podcast because the last few months I've been thinking very much about firefighters. I recently had an article in a magazine called Fire UK, and I'm talking to the British Fire Brigade Union at the moment, uh, appealing to their members for information. So this is a great opportunity. The background is this. As I already mentioned, I'm interested in the mysteries of everyday life. And one of those mysteries is our ability to wake up before alarm clocks. I've done surveys that show that more than 90% of people have had the experience of waking a minute or two before the alarm goes off. Um, some people have found that they uh, can program themselves to wake at a particular time. They don't even need the alarm clock. They want to get up at 4.30 to catch an early flight, for example. They program themselves to be awake at 4.30 and they wake at 4.29, reliably enough not even to bother with the alarm clock. Now, these are very, very common experiences, and people wake before alarms not only at routine times, but at non-routine times, like when they set up to catch an early flight. Now, most people just take this for granted and assume it's a matter of a biological clock or some kind of uh, circadian rhythm or some um, built-in clock in our minds. But actually, I don't think it's very likely our evolutionary ancestors never had to wake up to catch an early flight at 4.30 in the morning. Uh, they woke up with the cock crow. And in rural societies, even today, people have a very approximate sense of time. They're often late, wildly late for things. It doesn't bother them. Um, it's only in the last generation or two that most people have had clocks and watches or mobile phones with clocks. So this precise time sense is not something we've evolved to have. And actually, I don't think we do have it. I think that the time sense, uh, the, the what's going on is 
a, a presentiment, a feeling in advance of um, the alarm going off or of re the clock reaching the time we want to wake up. Um, and the, it, so I think that the test for this um, is what happens when people wake before an unexpected alarm. For example, a fire alarm going off or an explosion or some uh, shock or noise in, in the environment, something falling down outside their house, something like that. Um, and so I've been appealing for information for people who wake before unexpected alarms. And indeed, quite a lot of people have found they do wake before unexpected alarms. And in the course of this appeal for information, one of the uh, stories I heard was from an Australian firefighter who said that he used to sleep, he's now retired, used to sleep at the fire station. And uh, he found himself waking up just before the siren went off. Um, and so he said he'd already sat up and was getting ready to put his boots on um, by the time the alarm sounded. And this happened on a regular basis. This gave me the idea that although most people don't get woken up at unscheduled times, firefighters and other people in emergency services do. It's part of their way of life. So uh, may, uh, firefighters may have more experience of this than most other people. Mm -hmm. I'd like to ask anyone who's listening now, if they've had an experience uh, to write to me about it, you can email me through my website, sheldrake.org. Uh, or uh, through my email address, sheldrake at sheldrake.org, um, and uh, tell me about your experiences waking before alarms, because this would help a lot in this uh, research that I'm doing right now. Could it be due to the fact that we're conditioned, for example, if I work for a busy fire department, that I'm used to getting up multiple times and the tones going off throughout the night that I just expect them, so I'm on edge, so maybe I never reach that real sleep, so when the tones do go off, I'm sort of already awake? Well, that's possible, but um, then you see the, the question, what about people who work for fire departments aren't very busy, where the alarms are much more infrequent? Mm -hmm. um, then, so, you know, it's possible that people just don't sleep very deeply, but still the question is, do they wake or become aware of a siren or alarm just before it goes off? This is really a question of what people's experience is. I don't have, I can't predict what people's experience will be. That's why I'm asking, uh, because I think in this kind of research, one has to start from what people have already noticed. Um, it's an area that nobody's studied before, as far as I know. Um, so the first stage is always the natural history of the phenomenon. What have people found? The second stage is how do we explain it? But the first thing is to start with the actual data, with people's experiences. Mm -hmm. I've experienced this firsthand where I only use an alarm clock at the firehouse. So say I need to be up by 6 or 6.15, I find myself waking up 5 to 10 minutes before that alarm clock goes off anyways. Oh, do you? Good. So you've had this experience yourself, at least with alarm clocks. Mm -hmm. This is fascinating, and I hope a lot of people will write to you about their experience with that. Now, just a few more questions for you before we wrap up here. I'm just curious, what is your idea of a good time with friends? What stories and scientific phenomena do people often bring up to you at parties and the like? You know, I'm interested, in, I'm curious about people's own experiences, and 
what happens to them in, in, in sort of surprising things that happen uh, uh, to them. And I, I'm interested in things that point to the deeper mysteries in life, because I think we're very close to mysteries all the time, as I've been saying throughout our conversation. Um, but we tend to take them for granted. Um, so um, I suppose that's one of the things I'm looking out for all the time, you know, the, the fact that so many really interesting and mysterious things happening um, mm -hmm. in our lives that we often don't pay enough attention to. Mm -hmm. I understand you do a hilarious imitation of your friend and the late psychedelic scholar Terence McKenna. Could you please share? Terence used to speak with a very nasal voice. <laughs> he um, uh, had an inimitable way of expressing things. One of his phrases I remember when he, we were having a discussion about alien abductions, and he was rather skeptical about the um, possibility of alien abductions. He said, Are we to take seriously? the possibility of uh, unscheduled house calls by pro bono proctologists from distant star systems. So he was just a, way, a, a bardic way of speaking that was deadpan and that was extraordinarily funny. And he didn't repeat himself. He was just an extraordinary uh, bardic gift. He had mixed Irish and Welsh ancestry, and I think it must have come you know, from that amazing bardic tradition that both those nations have. Mm -hmm. That was spot on. Thank you so much for entertaining that question. All right, Rupert, if you'd be so kind as to share what's on your shelf, are you reading anything good right now? Oh, well, I'm reading quite a lot of technical scientific papers, which interest me, but they're not everyone's cup of tea. I'm reading a book called Sophia by Sergei Bogdanov, who was a Russian orthodox theologian, a very interesting and deep thinker, um, which I find very fascinating. Well, thanks for sharing. So last question, if you could have a drink or a conversation with anyone in history, who would you choose and why? Possibly Isaac Newton. He was a very interesting figure. He was a bit tetchy and difficult, so it wouldn't be much fun talking to him. Um, but his thinking was extremely wide-ranging. He was an alchemist. He had a kind of mystical vision of the universe. He was a theologian of a rather unconventional kind. I think he would be very fascinating to talk to. I would love to listen in on that conversation. All right, Rupert, your website is sheldrake.org. You're on Twitter at Rupert Sheldrake. I'll link to your latest book, Ways to Go Beyond and Why They Work, Seven Spiritual Practices in a Scientific Age in my show notes. Where else do you want people to go to connect with you? Well, that's a pretty good uh, coverage. My website, sheldrake.org, uh, which has a link to my YouTube channel where there are many talks and, and dialogues. Um, so all those are things that people could follow up on. And if anyone does indeed have stories about waking before an unscheduled alarm, do please email me at sheldrake at sheldrake.org. Perfect. All right, Rupert, this was really an honor. Thank you so much for all of your insight and the conversation. Good. Thank you, Nick, and all the best. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow me on social media at Primalosophy. And if you want to subscribe to my weekly newsletter, Sunday Goods, you can find the link in the show notes. Shakoba.